Welcome back to the program. Well, the United States has, since its founding, prided itself on the idea of justice for all. Those principles never really found expression in the international realm until relatively recently in our history. Former Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, who prosecuted crimes at Nuremberg, would lay out the case when he said in his opening remark that the record on which we judge these defendants today is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow. To pass these defendants a poison chalice is to put it on our own lips. Given this, the idea that the U.S. would ever participate in any kind of permanent international tribunal has always seemed remote. Yet ten years ago, the International Criminal Court would come to be, and for all its struggles and limitations, it has really just started to get its footing. My guest, David Bosco, gives us a clear picture of this court in his new book, Rough Justice. David Bosco teaches international politics and law at American University School of International Service. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, a former attorney and senior editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Bosco back to this program to talk about Rough Justice, the International Criminal Court in a World of Power Politics. David Bosco, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about how this court initially came to be. How did it start to coalesce? Yeah, well, the the momentum really got going in the early 1990s um, when there were uh, significant atrocities in the former Yugoslavia and then uh, in Rwanda. And in both of those cases, the international community set up um, essentially a special tribunal to investigate and prosecute people responsible for crimes in those situations. And at that point, a lot of people um, you know, said, well, look, if we're going to set up individual tribunals um, to deal with specific situations, why don't we just create a permanent international criminal court that's ready to, to investigate and prosecute. And that was, uh, you know, you mentioned Justice Jackson and Nuremberg, and that was an idea that had actually um, emerged right after the Nuremberg tribunals, um, but never really took off. And this idea was then resuscitated, revived in the, in the early 1990s. Um, and things really got rolling in terms of negotiations on it in uh, 1995, 1996. There was, though, always a, a certain fear, a certain trepidation on the part of the U.S., on the part of other great powers. Talk a little about that, because that really underlies yeah. the evolution of it. Yes, absolutely. The The U.S. was really divided on this. Um, I mean, the U.S. had been the champion um, and provided most of, you know, the, the greatest amount of funding for um, the Yugoslav Tribunal was a key backer of the Rwanda Tribunal. But once you start talking about a permanent court, then the question arises, would the United States be willing to have its own officials, its own soldiers, um, judged by this court? And um, that has been a kind of red line for the United States. Um, and the Clinton administration was in office when the negotiations uh, for, the, for the ICC really got going. And they really wrestled with this, and ultimately they decided, no, we can't back a court that might be able to reach us and reach our activity. Um, and that was the decision that was taken. And so in 1998, the U.S. voted uh, against the um, statute creating the ICC, and they weren't alone in that. Um, China was also opposed. Uh, Russia um, has never joined the ICC, 
India has not joined. Um, and so you've got a, a number of very large powers that have decided this isn't for us. Um, and so there's there's something of a of a divide now where a lot of small states uh, have joined the court, but many of the big powers have not. And of course, at core, no matter what the political or stated reason, it really goes to the heart of, as Justice Jackson said, this poison chalice idea. Yeah, and and what we're finding now, um, you know, a decade into the ICC's existence, is that this question of double standards has really become acute. Um, and a number of African leaders, for example, have said, look, every ICC investigation now has been of an African country. Where are the investigations of, you know, say, Russia, Russian activities in Georgia or um, stuff that's going on in Afghanistan, including potentially activities by NATO? Um, or of Palestine, um, or of Sri Lanka, you know, and you can go on and on with other situations that haven't been investigated. And um, so it, it's, you hear, you know, I talked to a lot of diplomats for the book and spent a lot of time with them, and, and you hear this uh, repeatedly and with increasing volume from uh, small, uh, small country diplomats in particular, this, this uh, accusation of double standards. There's also this sense of the greater powers wanting it both ways. In many cases, they were supportive of the idea of the ICC, going back to its its formal formation in Rome that you talk about, but yet yes. didn't really want any part of it. They wanted it, but didn't want it. Yeah, that's exactly right. They want it, but they don't want it. Um, and, you know, what what how it really developed at Rome during the negotiations was the question of, was the U.N. Security Council where the U.S., of course, and Russia and China um, have a veto power, was that going to be able to control the court? Um, and with, would, you know, what the U.S. wanted was a court that could only investigate a situation when the Security Council said so. And that, of course, would give Washington uh, a veto, and, and Washington would be able to say yes to this, no to that. Um, that was not acceptable to, to the rest of the world, and that was why the that was in large part the reason the U.S. voted against the court. There was also the sense of the court coming together, and you talk about this, in a kind of magic time as the Cold War ended and we weren't really clear what the ongoing threats to the world were going to be. Yeah, it was, um, and I think this is obviously more uh, apparent in retrospect, but I think the period between the end of the Cold War, say 1989, 1990, and before the 9/11 attacks, um, was a, a kind of unique period, a kind of um, you know a period where there was a lot of enthusiasm for international institutions, for for the possibility of kind of global governance, and um, I think the 9/11 attacks, and also um, to an extent the the rise of China has um, kind of brought us back maybe to a more traditional world where power politics matter and, and you think about, you know, competing great powers and you also think about, you know, power countries like the United States using force in a lot of um, controversial ways um, as they go after terrorists and terrorist suspects. And so I do think it's, you know, the ICC was created in, uh, in a kind of unique context and it's hard to imagine, say, that having happened after 9-11. You 
you know, I just don't think there, there I think there would have been a lot more resistance, um, even stronger resistance from from uh, a number of states. 9-11 is key because you talk about Clinton signing the treaty that creates the, the ICC in sort of the later days of his presidency, and in 2002, the Bush administration kind of unsigning it. Yeah, yeah. At the, the very end of his presidency, um, you know, Clinton decided, well, let's let's associate the U.S. with this court. He he knew, and he said it, he said in in his signing statement that um, we're not going to be able to get this ratified, and we still have problems with it. But he kind of wanted to associate the United States, which, as I said, had been a champion of of international justice in other contexts. But the Bush administration comes into office, and um, they that administration included a lot of people who were kind of viscerally opposed to um, this notion of of justice that could that could reach everyone uh, much more hostile ideologically to the idea of the ICC uh, notably John Bolton who ultimately became the US ambassador to the UN and he really pushes to get the US to sign uh, the 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 statute and that's what happens in 2002 talk a little bit about what the court has actually done what it has accomplished one of the things you you discuss is how its bureaucracy has grown exponentially and certainly far more than than arguably what it's actually accomplished yeah no i mean the court has grown from an institution of you know a handful of people to um now an institution with a budget of over a hundred million dollars a year and and hundreds of employees um and it has launched uh, eight investigations um it's indicted um several dozen people as I mentioned earlier, each every one of these full investigations has been in Africa. Uh, some of the more notable have been in uh, Uganda, where they've uh, indicted several leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army, um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, in Sudan, where um, the court has indicted the sitting president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, um, mainly for, for his policies in the, in the Darfur region. Um, and then in Kenya, um, one of the more notable cases, the, the sitting president of Kenya um, is now facing um, charges at the ICC. Um, the court has been very slow. Uh, only one case has you know, gone through to, to a, ver- a verdict. Uh, partly that's because the court hasn't been able to get its hands on um, a lot of the people that it's indicted, and, and they don't have any provision for trials in absentia, and so that means that trials essentially don't get started. But even those trials that have moved ahead have been very slow, um, and that's, um, that's, a, that's actually pretty consistent with other international tribunals. These things move slowly, in, in part because they have um, very high standards, they have very significant protections for defendants, and also because the institution is new and there are a lot of legal and administrative and technical questions that have to be worked out. And so, you know, from the perspective of some people, is this really worth it? You know, hundreds of millions of dollars for one person, ultimately, um, you know, who's been, who's been convicted. Um, what advocates say is, look, this is the beginning and we have to, you know, get this going and it will become more efficient and quicker over the years. Um, and they also hope it will have more of a deterrent impact over the years, that as the court continues its operations, that leaders and warlords and 
others around the world will 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 see that you know if they commit serious crimes, they they face a significant risk of prosecution. How is the court funded? It's funded by the states that that have joined it, um, and so every state that that uh, joins the court pays a uh, and, you know, an annual due, essentially. Um, and so that makes the largest funders are uh, Japan, Germany. It's, if you look at it in the aggregate, um, the European states are, are the largest funding block because European states have joined the court and because they're uh, wealthier than other states, they're asked to pay more. Talk about what concerns or, or lack of concerns that European nations have and how they have, have reconciled the reality of the court. Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, as I mentioned, a number of big powers haven't joined, but the exception really has been the European big powers. So Britain, France, they, they had some hesitations about it, France in particular, but they ultimately decided to join. Germany has been quite enthusiastic about the court. Um, and so, so they've joined and, and they rhetorically are quite supportive of the court. When it comes down to concrete situations, um, things get a little bit more dicey. Um, so for example, you know, I talk in the book about the indictment of Sudan's president, um, Omar al-Bashir, and you know, for British and French diplomats, both of whom were fairly heavily involved in Sudan, they didn't, they weren't sure that was such a good idea, and they engaged in some diplomatic efforts that talked about maybe delaying the indictment or putting it on hold while diplomatic efforts went ahead. And so, you know, they, the, the, the mix of diplomacy and justice is, is always a complicated one. But I think the European powers have decided that this in the aggregate, overall, serves their interests and that they're willing to support the institution and they're willing to expose their own people, potentially, to, um, to prosecution. And that's, uh, that's an interesting reality because just a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of uh, UK lawyers in, in, in Britain um, and elsewhere filed a document with the court urging the court to investigate some atrocities by British soldiers in Iraq. Um, that have, and so, you know, they, they, they have to take seriously the, the possibility that the court might ultimately decide that some of the activities of their nationals deserve investigation. How has the decision process arrived at within the court, even what to investigate, much less what to prosecute? Yeah, well, it's a little bit, it, it's a little bit hard to tell. And, and, you know, I tried to talk to as many people as I could for the book inside the court, but obviously the, People in the court aren't, you know, eager to talk about the internal processes. Um, they say that, you know, the court looks at each situation, decides how severe are the crimes. Um, you know, they do a kind of ranking, um, and they decide, do we have jurisdiction here? Because there are some places they do and some places they don't. And then they try to uh, to move, you know, without reference to politics or strategic interests, and they just try to move on the investig on the situations they think are most severe. I think there's some good evidence that actually power politics factors into the equation, um, and that you know the interests of of powerful states get get a hearing in the court. But uh, that's obviously a very sensitive topic and not something that court officials are, are particularly eager to, uh, 
to verify. Has there been any desire or willingness on the part of the court to look at torture and things like torture around the world? Well, that would be that would be a really interesting investigation, and um, you could imagine that a really aggressive court might say, "Look, one of the most serious things that's happened recently is there are you know." fairly well-documented allegations that the United States has involved itself in interrogation that most people think amounts to torture. Um, And um, there are ways in which, theoretically, the court might be able to exercise jurisdiction. For example, you know, it has jurisdiction in Afghanistan, and uh, because Afghanistan's a court member. And, you know, some of, there's some evidence of abuses that went on by U.S. individuals in Afghan prisons. Um, So that could be a potential route to jurisdiction. But the court has not taken that kind of step. Um, uh, But, you know, if you had a prosecutor who is sufficiently aggressive and, and sufficiently willing to take risks, that might be the kind of thing that they would look at. Is it your sense that the court over time, and particularly as it has grown larger and larger, has become mm. more or less risk-averse in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a little bit hard to say. You know, we are only a decade in. Um, I I think they still remain quite risk-averse in terms of uh, which situations they decide to investigate. Um, I think within situations, they've become a little bit more bold about who they want to prosecute because, you know, there's the separate question of once you've got an investigation going, which individuals do you prosecute? And some are more sensitive than others. So I would say, though, at the, at the strategic level, the court is still pretty risk-averse. Um, tactically, it's a little bit more um, confident maybe than it was earlier on. Is there an effort on the part of the larger powers to encourage these smaller investigations, more of the situations that you talk about in Africa, as a way to essentially give the court something to do without its mission becoming too large in scope? Yeah, well, that's a that's something that a lot of diplomats think kind of has gone on, and that, you know, the U.N. Security Council, while it can't control the court, it can refer situations to the court. And so it has done that actually twice um, in Sudan and in Libya. And, um, you know, I quote in the book uh, a, a diplomat um, who, who says, well, look, you know, this is, a, this is a situation that's dangerous for the court because if the Security Council kind of refers situations that it likes to the court and the court then investigates a lot of resources and time in those situations, it's not going to have resources and time for other situations where maybe, you know, key powers aren't enthusiastic about it. And so that the Security Council referrals become a um, kind of informal way of controlling or influencing the court's docket. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's one of the dilemmas that, um, that um, you know, states, even states that support the court are, are kind of thinking about now. How is the U.N. and the various leaders that the U.N. has had, even in this decade-long period, how have they approached the court, and how do they view it with respect to its support of or interference with its own mandate? Yeah, that's a a great question. The 
you know, the UN generally has been supportive, and so at the Rome Conference when the ICC was created, the, the Secretary General, who was then Kofi Annan, came and gave a big speech and encouraged the process. But when it comes down to it, um, in, say, a situation maybe where there's a UN peacekeeping force on the ground, um, that creates complications because uh, those peacekeepers have to decide, okay, we've got this local official who's been indicted by the ICC, but he's important in terms of, you know, our mandate of delivering aid or whatever, you know, do we deal with that person? And um, in several situations, the UN has dealt with those kind of people. It's, it's interacted with, it's even, you know, given flights um, to um, people who've been indicted by the court. And the court obviously is not very happy about that, but the UN says, look, we have our own responsibilities, and um, those responsibilities aren't the same, and justice may be important, but it's not the only thing that's important. So it's, uh, it's, it's something that, that, that the UN and the ICC are trying to work out on the ground in specific situations. What do you see as the future of the court at this point? Well, it's, it's established now, um, and um, the relationship with the U.S. has gotten better. Um, so that's important. Um, the Security Council has referred some cases, and that's a, an important legitimizing element. So I think the court is uh, is going to, you know, be around for the long haul. Um, my guess is that the court will remain fairly cautious, and that it will, you know, not in any formal sense, but that it will be kind of constrained in terms of the cases that it gets involved in, and that it will probably continue to shy away from stuff that's really sensitive to um, the big powers. Um, and uh, so it will still be vulnerable to those charges of hypocrisy and, and double standards, but it will also be investigating some very serious things that, that should be investigated. Um, and I think it will go on like that. And, and that's consistent with what we see with other in international institutions, where there's, there's a level of hypocrisy and double standards, and yet the world has just this kind of decided, well, this is the best we can do, and, and it's something we're willing to live with. Does that hypocrisy and, and double standard over time erode the legitimacy of the court? And more importantly, does it destroy the idealism of those associated with the court in a way that, that makes the institution less good? Yeah, this is, this is the, the biggest question um, associated with the court. And um, I think it can have that impact. Um, the question is how much does it erode the legitimacy and um, is enough of the legitimacy left um, for the institution to function? And I, I think enough of it will be left, um, you know, barring some kind of very dramatic developments um, that, say, the court could have investigated but didn't. I, I, I think the world will, will conclude that this is still a worthwhile thing, even if it's uh, imperfect. David Bosco, his book is Rough Justice, the International Criminal Court in a World of Power Politics. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.